Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today's episode is brought to us by BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's exactly what you would write in the sand if you were stuck on an island, right? H-E-L-P, help. And then you see the helicopter go by, you start waving. BetterHelp is that helicopter. They are the ones that will save you. They will pick you up. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me, it's been a sense of feeling inadequate or uh, afraid of expressing my needs. Because like, if I express my needs and they say no and they find out what I really want, they're going to leave and I'll be abandoned and I have to start all over again. And, and also just comparing myself to other people. Every time I compare, I get on social media and I see the, the amazing life that other people are living, it just makes me want to just curl up and stop doing everything that I'm doing. But BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Now, I understand when you are in uh, despair and, and you are spiraling, you just feel like, the last thing I want to do was talk to anybody, but it's the best thing to do. When, when I was in trouble, when I couldn't see my way through the, the, the thickness, through the darkness, it was talking to someone, especially a professional therapist that guided me through. I still have a therapist. I have not only my own therapist, but I have a couple's therapist. So me and my girlfriend have a therapist. Like therapy, talking to someone is so beneficial but it doesn't feel like it when you're in the midst of it. Now, I want you to remember that it's not a crisis line. Better help is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. Better help is not the right solution for you if you have thoughts of hurting yourself or others. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with, as with traditional therapy. You could kick back at the crib at your house in Sukasa and get your therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and Free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And here's the kicker, ladies and gents. Financial aid is available. That's right. But you, ain't, you don't have to go to college. College ain't the only one doling out financial aid. BetterHelp has financial aid because BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily, right? Check them out. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. That's right. I got a slash before the name. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. That's Better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer. Here's a special offer. Check this out. I just, 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 just came in just now. Special offer for my Before You Kill Yourself listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. That's right. Just for tuning in, just for being a, a friend, uh, an ally, uh, just somebody who I could just, who I enjoy spending my time with, 10% off your first month if you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Let's go. Yeah, I'm doing well. How about yourself today? Uh, you know, just just got it from a nap, man. Any day I could nap, I'm, <laughs> I'm 100%. This is therapy. I think that this, so now this is the second time I've talked to you, and both times you were waking up from a nap. So, yeah, you, you seem like the, uh, the professional napper. I, I used to fight it, man. You know, I, I used to be on that. Yo, I got to be hustling 24-7. And, and now I'm like, I, no, I need to nap. I need to nap. I need to lay it down and, uh, and recharge. It's smart. I, I'm still uh, learning how to nap. I just, uh, you know, it's hard enough just trying to sleep at night. You know, trying to turn that brain off. So that's my next uh, life skill that I'm trying to get. That that nap skill. I want I want that nap badge. All right. So here, here's the trick. 
All right. This is, this is after this is after weeks of research. Uh, twenty minutes or ninety minutes. You, you okay. don't you don't want to. You only want to nap for those durations. If you if you go longer than twenty, you start to get in your REM cycles, and then that's mm-hmm. when like you wake up all like angry and in 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 a fitful rage. Uh, and but if you and then the uh ninety minutes, that's a full REM cycle. So if you if you get a full ninety minutes, that's when you feel rested. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah, you see what I'm saying. So basically, like the the problem that most people have is that they'll set their timer for like thirty five or forty five, and then they're waking up in the middle of their of their REM cycle, and that's like when you're in that deep sleep, and that's when you wake up all groggy, you know, like the end of yep. Mortal Combat. So you don't want that. <laughs> I know I actually use this uh, even when I wake up from regular sleep I use uh, what's it called now I gotta look at this app name uh, crap where'd it go oh sleep cycle Yo. So and it, it basically kind of it senses you know your cycle and so you know you set that window and it helps you wake up so you're not just jarring yourself awake sleep cycle saved my life I use that every night oh alright all right, I'm not alone nah man <laughs> nah, I, I, listen the, the sleep Figuring out sleep, man, because it, it really does affect your day. It affects how you feel about yourself, about your life, about it, your mood. It, it affects my eating habits. It's, it's a complete domino effect. Yeah, I, I've definitely been learning that the older I get. is uh, yeah, Sleep is probably the most important thing that you can do for yourself. Let me, let me ask you this because we're, we're already recording. We're already in it. I mean, did you have any questions before, mm-hmm. we, before we continue? Oh, no, I'm all good. Nope. We can keep it going. You know, I, I love that your the the mission of your your of your company uh, uh, was it DCP DCP Entertainment. I love that yeah. the the mission of it is to to tell the stories of 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 communities and people who are underrepresented in media, uh, and and you're talking about women, uh, people with disabilities, people of color. Uh, LGBTQ IAP community. They keep adding letters. I, I gotta. Yeah. Uh, uh, my brain. Oh, there's always a little anxiety when I'm like, "Am I missing a letter? Is somebody gonna call me? Be mm-hmm. like, yo, man, how you gonna?" Uh, and then uh, also, uh, uh, you know, people who have struggled with mental health. Why do you feel a, a, a calling to tell their stories? Um, I think it primarily comes from having worked in the media industry now for, I stopped counting, but like 13, somewhere like 13, 15 years now. Um, and a lot of it more in the radio industry, but you're always looking at the total landscape of you know, video, um, whether it be streaming, whether it be, um, you know, your traditional local TV networks, cable, what have you, is that I noticed that there were very few people of color. That's where I first started noticing. Just there's not a lot of black people on television. And if there are or on radio, and if they are, they're not in the best time slot. They're not getting the weekday slot. They're getting the weekend slot or they're getting the, you know, the midday slot. Um, And even if they are getting these shows, they weren't getting the same level of resources. Like I wasn't seeing the same amount of commercials for their shows. I wasn't seeing the billboards for them. And so I just saw this, this weird dichotomy of, Okay, these companies want to try to reach these people, but they're not giving us a value. They're not showing the listener, the the viewer, um, that there's a reason for them to tune in. They're not showing that we're telling stories that you're going to understand. And so being a black man myself and having grown up in a neighborhood in the suburbs of Baltimore where I grew up in a white neighborhood and spent my summers in Baltimore City, which is very black, and spent my Sundays in the black church, you know, I, I come from that same kind of in dichotomy environment of my story not necessarily being reflected in the people that I'm around. And so I want to start a company that could do that and to give opportunities to these kind of hosts um, and to give an opportunity to communities to feel like they're being reflected into in the content that's being put out. Um, and the only way to do that is to have people that look like them to be able to tell those stories and the people that have lived those kind of experiences to tell that story. And so. Um, yeah, I think that's what drove me to it. But I think even deeper than that really is that personal experience of growing up and just on the racial side of things, on the people of color side of things. It comes from being in a racist uh, area um, in Maryland and also then having a lack of racial identity because I didn't feel white enough for the white people. I didn't feel black enough for the black people. And so that kind of birthed my um 
my wanting to do programming that can show the breadth of who these people of color are. Um, and then, you know, there's other shows that we do with like mental health and disability. And those all those also come from personal experiences as well. Um, so, yeah, it comes from my own personal experiences, but then also what I see in the landscape in terms of what's not being offered. And so I hope that with what we're doing, we're going to get a lot of people listening to our shows. But I hope we also help change culture and hope that these other major companies or even other small companies like us take these same chances. And I don't even want to call them risks. I think, you know, they they'll see the opportunities that are there. Um, and so, yeah, that's where we're trying to lead. Man, you know, it's fascinating is I just watched a documentary on Big Bird. Uh, and the guy, <laughs> the guy who played Big Bird on Sesame Street, and I didn't realize how diverse Sesame Street was for its time. There were yeah. so many people of color, uh, yeah. black, Asian, uh, Latino, and, and like mainstays too. Not like some one-off that you know, uh, Big Bird wouldn't kill, they weren't killing anybody off on Sesame Street, and. Uh, and I'm like, and and then it's like now I gotta I gotta search for them or you know Grey's Anatomy they do a good job but you know um, you know Shonda Rhimes is uh, is is putting in that putting in that work to make that happen. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it it floors me that you know back in the '80s when we had the Jeffersons, the Cosby Show, uh, Sesame like all these shows where it looked like we were moving in the right direction and then there was just uh, a famine, uh, a cultural famine on on TV, and uh, it, there seems to be a resurgence. But the one, especially the one area that I see uh, is people with disabilities. Like there, there, you don't see a lot of sign language uh, or deaf people. I remember there was one deaf actress back in the nineties. Yep. She was on Ally McBeal, and um, yep. so it, it, you have these these blips, these outliers. And, but there's uh, but what we're lacking is consistency and and, and uh, a clear uh, upward tra- uh, tra- uh, trajectory of diversity uh, uh, on a, in a media landscape. Absolutely. And, you know, the one that I think what you just touched on there with disability is, is a really um, you know, interesting perspective. I think I learned a lot by working with Lacey Henderson, one of our um, hosts, the host of Pick Last and Gym Class. Um, just literally having produced and, and watching her program, I learned a lot of things about that community that I didn't realize. One, that they're the largest minority group in the world, which makes sense when you hear it, but it's not something I ever thought about. Um, and so, you know, that was something that was big. And then I, you know, I say I thought it, but having listened to them, I then realized, like, wow, there's actually no real representation for that disability um, community, this, that disabled community. And if there is representation, you know, they're seen as victims. They're seen as, you know, kind of this sob story. Whereas what Lacey does with her program and what I'd love to see more happen more often is oh, they're just operating like any other host or they're operating like any other, uh, you know, bit character in in a show. Um, And it doesn't necessarily have to be, hey, look, I don't have legs or, hey, look, I I don't have my hearing. It's, oh, I'm just a regular human being and I happen to be a great interviewer. I mean, I happen to have this disability, but I'm really just an interviewer, right? You know, just happen to be um, deaf and I happen to be an actress as well. So that's more, I think, what I want to be able to see out there in the landscape is more representation without having to flaunt what it is that makes you so different. Because I think the community that is a part of that, they're going to see it and they're going to understand it and they're going to feel empowered that now they really can be anything and do anything. Absolutely. And and one of the reasons why uh, I'm so excited to have you on is, you know, this, you know, with this being a suicide prevention podcast, a lot of people feel um, who struggle with suicidality, uh, they feel alone and they feel like they're, they're a burden. But But also at the crux of it, they feel like, their story is not worth sharing or telling. Uh, you know, a lot of people minimize what they've gone through and they feel like they should just be able to, to suck it up or they feel like it's not important. But, you know, the, the beauty of audio and visual storytelling is you're taking these very small, minute stories and, and making us care. And, and, and can you talk about that? Yeah, and I'll talk about it from literally that mental health perspective. We The first program that we ever started producing, it wasn't the first one we put out, um, but the first one we started producing was a show called Inner Space, where the whole show is based around mental health and emotional well-being. And 
in doing that show, I think we learned a lot as a company. We learned a lot as individuals as we did it. But I realized something in myself when I was doing it that I was doing exactly what you just said. I was qualifying my life experiences. I was qualifying my trauma um, and not allowing myself to fully embrace it or, or try to take care of myself or even talk about it because I felt like it wasn't as bad as everybody else. So, you know, growing up in a white suburb, I'm not from the inner city. I don't have to worry about necessarily the same drug problems or violence and all this. And so the trauma I experienced with racism or the trauma I experienced um, with my racial identity uh, or any other kinds of things don't equate to the same level of, oh, my God, I might die tomorrow. And so I didn't feel comfortable to speak out loud about my trauma because I thought maybe that would be seen as me complaining. And, well, why are you complaining? You had it so much better than these other people. And so by doing that, I never dealt with my trauma and dealt with what it is I was going through. And it it took working on this show to understand that, no, everybody's trauma is is valid, Um, regardless if it's better or worse than anybody else's. There's no such thing. It's, it's your experience is your experience and you need to own that and you need to be able to explore that so that hopefully you can be a healthier, better person and, and hopefully, you know, still be able to live on this planet. You know, I've listened to some of your past shows and, and I know that you've, um, you know, had the suicidal ideation and, and have, you know, maybe attempted in the past as well. And myself at the age of 13, I tried to take my own life. Um, and it's something that I never fully dealt with later on. I, I didn't make any other attempts, but it's not something I revisited mentally um, until we started working on this program. And so I hope that when people hear that kind of program or hear other programs, they are able to have that same kind of takeaway for themselves and feel more comfortable in their own body, which then will make them feel more comfortable to speak out to others, which then makes those people feel more comfortable to do exactly the same thing. It's, it's this snowball effect. And so I really hope that we're that you know, if not that first snowflake, that we're one of those snowflakes that contributes to that snowball. I love that. And, and without going into detail in terms of how you try to end your life, what were the circumstances uh, leading up to what were the feelings that what were you feeling that that led you up to that moment? Definitely loneliness, um, which is an interesting thing to say, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people out there can relate to this, which is I'm an extrovert for the most part. Um, I do enjoy being alone, uh, but for the most part, I love being around people. I make friends extremely easily. Um, and so I don't think anybody would ever look at me and categorize me as a loner or you know, ever being you know, feeling this aloneness. But that's what I felt at that time. And I think a lot of it came from that identity issue of no one can relate to me. Uh, No one can relate to this experience that I'm having racially. No one can understand the experience that I'm having within my family dynamic, which everybody has their own different family dynamics. Um, It's just this aloneness. And I think it was self-perpetuating because I just wasn't talking about any of it. So I probably wasn't alone. But I convinced myself that I was alone because I didn't see anybody else like me. But that was also because I wasn't looking for anybody else like me. Um, And so I think that's what kind of led up to it. And I think when I finally made that decision that I was going to you know, make this attempt, I then also rationalized it of, OK, well, I may not want to do this because this is going to hurt my family. But uh, you know what? That's one less mouth to feed. Um, we're not rich. We're also not poor. I'd call myself, you know, we were lower middle class. But I, I remember I wrote out these letters to family members, uh, my mother, my father, my I think my sister, probably a few friends. And I had these letters in my my closet so that when they eventually found me, they'd you know be able to see these letters and understand why I did what I did. And I think I remember writing in those letters that, hey, you know, the family's going to be you know, better off financially. You can sell this of mine. You can sell that of mine. Um, and so I almost thought that I was doing a good thing um, by trying to take my life. I wouldn't be a burden anymore. And so that loneliness and feeling like I can relieve a burden is what, you know, really was that last step that, you know, put me into that situation that, I, that I, you know, I essentially kind of put myself into myself. And how did you you pull yourself out of that? Um, so. The first thing that happened was I wasn't able to do it um, and it was more of a. So the way I was trying to take uh, the way I was trying to take my life was to, uh, you know, with something with a sharp and, you know, know, to be able to basically bleed bleed out. And I don't want to go into details and and all that. But um, when I tried to do it, I couldn't break my skin. 
And at that same time, a storm started happening and this thunder was going. And I just had kind of this spiritual moment of, oh, this is God. This is, you know, the universe telling me that I'm not supposed to do this. And so that was my in the moment reason I didn't do it. But in terms of why I never made another attempt, my mother eventually found those letters. I left them in my closet. Um, I don't remember why I did. Maybe that was just me you know, saying that maybe I will attempt again at some point. But I left them in there and she eventually found them. And uh, it was just a random day. And she called me up to my room and she had the letters laying out. And we just had this heart to heart and she was crying and um, I could just see how painful it was just for her to even think about it, let alone, you know, for me to actually be gone. And I think that was what, you know, helped be that last thing that ever said, OK, I'm not going to do this. This definitely isn't going to help anybody. Um, and so, you know, I never really made another attempt after that. I also think that as I got older, once I you know, got to maybe my 20s or so, I then started to realize that I hadn't I had an experience that I could then relate to other people as well. Um, and I think that was it's like, OK, now I have a life purpose um, that I'm here to do to be able to, to, you know, speak openly about my experiences and taken now into my 30s to feel you know, open to share even more. But at least then I knew, OK, I've been through some things. Let me search out for other people that might feel alone and make them feel like they're that they belong. I don't think I was talking about my suicide attempt or anything at that point. But I was trying to find other people like me that might feel lonely, even if they are extroverted or um, if they are going through some kind of hardship. I can be there for them to talk to. Yeah, because I'm when I think about Maryland and, and uh, you know, Baltimore, I don't think uh, diversity. I just think black and, and you know, you you're, you being mixed. Um, that, that had to be rough. And so did you, when you say you start to look out for other people like you, did you just mean like racially or like what, what were your, what were your like, uh, specifications? Yeah. And so I'm actually not mixed. I just grew up in a white neighborhood. I'm, I'm black, black, blackity black. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, I grew up in a white neighborhood, uh, called Hartford County, um, which is just outside of Baltimore, um, and so in that neighborhood, there wasn't many black people. There were some Filipino, uh, people there, a few black people, um, but a lot of white. And so when you say what qualifications I was looking for, I always gravitated to other just minorities. Cause that was kind of this shared experience of being a minority in this, this white space, um, and feeling kind of alone. That's what I started to look for. Okay. Who are other people who may be growing up in an area where the people don't look like them? They don't necessarily have to be black, but they have this experience of feeling like they're an outsider. Um, and you can, you can, even if your experiences aren't exactly the same, you have these shared, um, views of the world, especially because of how the world views you. And I think that is the kind of people that I was searching out at that point. You know, I completely relate. Me and my buddy, uh, I, I grew up s- almost similar to you, not quite white neighborhood. It was a, it was a definitely a, a culturally diverse neighborhood. But the the private school I ended up going to, elementary wise, was uh, it was ninety nine percent white, and I had come from a, a a black public school. So I go from this black public school to an all white. A Catholic school, and so like you know, I'm like, all right, what's the? How do I navigate this? How do I adapt? Um, and then, you know, to go to a diverse uh, uh, high school again, and then you know, having it like, all right, here we go, dealing with you know different types again, and then going off to college in Indiana, and um, where there's almost Indiana's like, no, mm. that it's just black and white. So yeah, it's like you're you're constantly navigating these different. And, you know, and I didn't even realize, like, not just navigating uh, color, but uh, socioeconomic status where, you know, I grew up like you, like we were were like middle class, maybe lower middle class, but it didn't feel lower middle class because we had everything we needed. Uh, But Mm -hmm. then to to go to a a white Catholic school. So then there's a a religious difference. But then there's also Mm -hmm. the the college students had computers or the. The, the Catholic school students had, I didn't have, I was like the only kid that didn't have a computer. You know, I was always having to go to Becky's or Katie's or uh, uh, Jennifer. I had to go to like their house to type up my paper and, you know, and I, because I didn't know what computers were. It took me forever to, to, to type the thing up. But uh, <laughs> my, my point is, is that there are so many levels of feeling like 
an outcast or different or a separation uh, e- even beyond the what we've mentioned in terms of color, disability, race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, etc. There's so many levels of that. So you're right in saying you just you were just looking for somebody who felt like that, you know. Um, yeah, and some of that is your own self perseverance, but also you know you're you're helping others by by finding them and and again making them feel like they're not by themselves. Now, in terms of dating and, and relationships, d- d- what I found is that I relate better with uh, women who uh, have a more cultural, culturally diverse background also, or who felt more like an outcast versus someone who was always in their bubble or comfort zone. Have you, mm. have you experienced that or no? That's interesting. Like as you were saying, I, I literally had to start thinking about my past relationships because I've never thought about that. That's a really good question. I think I do too. You know, I've dated women of all races. I don't gravitate to any one, but I now looking back, I think, you know, the women I have dated um, were, you know, kind of outsiders in whatever community they, community they were. Um, whether it be, you know, I remember I dated an Asian woman who used to live in France, and you know, then uh, uh, moved to like California in Orange County, very white neighborhood. You know, a black woman from southern uh, New Jersey from a white neighborhood. Uh, though I was about to say my last girlfriend's Latina from the Bronx. So she was amongst her people up there in the Bronx. But still, you know, a, a person of color in New York City. Uh, so, yeah, I think I gravitate to those those kind of people because I think there's something to be said about, you know, the support that you get from your partner. And, and there is that unspoken support that only someone who has that kind of experience can really give you, um, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and I realized I was putting a lot of undue pressure on, on my girlfriends because I, I, was, I was getting mad that they couldn't relate to some of the things that, that I would bring up. And, and you know, as I, I've gotten older, uh, I realized, like, you can't expect your partner to uh, connect with you on all the things. Like, that's just ridiculous and I, I found myself ending relationships just off of the, and i was like ah oh, no i look back and i'm like that that was ridiculous like um <laughs> it, but you realize the importance of having uh, a social network right it's like yeah. i go to my boys over here when i want to when i want to get street you know and i and then i i, I talk to my colleagues over here when i you know want to it's <laughs> like like you it's it's that that code switching that you know you you and I, I don't know if you if you ex- I'm sure you went through that where you know you had to uh, be a particular way with different groups of people and then you grow up just kind of navigating the world in in such a way. Yeah, definitely, and and now it has a name to it, you know, code switching. But I, I used to always just say that just, I just have different parts to my personality, and it comes from living all these different kinds of experiences, and sometimes having to put on a little bit of a mask that eventually becomes, you know, part of who you are. You, if you act, you know, these method actors out here, a lot of times who they play becomes part of their personality. I think the same thing happens in everyday life as well. Um, so I, I don't like to think of it as, you know, putting on masks or, or even code switching. I like to really think that these, this is just who I am in different arenas. Um, but what you just said actually reminded me, too. I remember I did date a girl one time. She was white um, and she used to get upset with me because I'd make jokes about, you know, racial kind of jokes. Nothing that's racist, but just talking, you know, what a black family might do versus another family, what have you. And she used to get so upset with me that I'd make these jokes. And I'm like it's a coping mechanism. Like, I'm sorry. I don't even know how to stop it at this point because that's the only way I could live from where I'm from because there was racism around. The only way you can kind of get through each day is to laugh at it. And, uh, and she couldn't understand that. And that relationship didn't last at all. And I, I, I look back on that and see like, that's pro- not to say that's the only reason we're not together, but that probably is a major factor. We couldn't truly relate to, to each other. I mean, if you can't, it's so important to be able to laugh together with someone like that. That's underrated. If if you're laughing at two different things or even worse, they don't have a sense of humor at all, then uh, that's, that's going to be a short lifespan on the relationship. Yep. The in terms of uh, when you look at the stories that have been told about minorities and uh, and and people of color and uh, LGBTQ, 
Is there a story that we haven't seen yet? That, that, that a story that you're like, why? How's this story never been told? How have we not heard about this? Um, it's interesting question to ask. Um, but right now, my mental state, you know, we're I don't know when when this will air, but I know you know we're currently you know just out of. Um, you know, this having watched Ahmad Arbery, you know, being shot and it's just another, you know, black person being killed. And before that happened, um, I'd already been working on a project and I'm still working on a project that deals with those kind of situations. And I literally had just spent this past Sunday as painstaking as it was spending five or six hours, literally just researching a lot of these stories and, and, it was emotionally exhausting, but it, it, it reminds you, too, of how few of these stories make it, make national news. And a lot of these don't even make local news. Um, there is um, so many names that I could I could bring up there. But there's, um, you know, probably one that a lot of people don't know is uh, a gentleman named uh, shoot. Now I'm starting to mix up names. Uh, sorry, give me one second. Not Jordan. No, um, oh, Danny Ray Thomas out of Houston, who was, I think, maybe a week or two earlier, maybe it was a month earlier, his wife had actually killed his kids, um, murdered his kids. And she was, I think, in jail, still awaiting trial. And he also had a past history of having been homeless. Um, he had had a rough upbringing. And at this point now, that manifested itself into some manic episodes. And one day he had a manic episode and ended up in the middle of the street in, in Houston, literally a block away from his house. I've, I've been to their house. It was right around the corner. And you can see the video. He has his pants around his ankles. His hands are in the air. He's walking towards the police officer. He's telling them to stop. He's not stopping, but he's also shuffling. He's not going fast. He's no threat. And he gets shot. I had never heard that story. I had to hear it through somebody else I interviewed for this program I'm working on. And they're like, oh, you should talk to this family. And it's just crazy how many of these happen and how few times we actually learn about them and how quickly we move on. They might become a hashtag for, you know, a week, maybe a month. You know, if we're lucky, maybe a, a year. Um, and it may pop back up when the verdict comes out. But then we move on. And then when the next one happens, we treat that one in a in, in, in a silo as if it's the only incident. Like we don't look at them as a, a mass trend. Um, and so, you know, that's, I guess, a story. But there's so many of those stories out there um, that it's, it's painful to have to, to try to talk about. But it's something that's definitely reticent on my mind as well as many other people's minds right now. Absolutely. You know, we, we easily get distracted with uh, the next movie that's about to be released or uh, another tragic event or even the economy and, and the quarantine. And, you know, with people trying to just get through the day or the week, uh, it, it, these these stories that it's easy to uh, bypass them. And, and unless like a celebrity, you know, makes it uh, their mission and, 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 and publicizes it. Uh, we never really hear about these stories, um, unfortunately. Yeah, and you, yeah, and you had asked me earlier, you know, what is it that has kind of essentially kept me from, you know, this suicidal ideation? Um, I'd say since my, you know, probably mid twenties, maybe even earlier, earlier twenties, that mission has really been, you know, how can I then help others? My mission now is to help other people either not feel like I felt. Or it is to, to educate so that, you know, horrible things don't happen. And so the drive that I now have to educate folks around these kind of stories that I just mentioned to do some of the other work we're doing, I view that now as my life's purpose. And I now understand that my life's purpose is born out of the trauma that I've had. And so I'm now trying to make that part of my life story as well as to tell people, don't run from your trauma. You know, try to find a way to understand it, to fully um, frame it and to understand how that has made you the person that you are, and then to also use that to inform what your impact on the world is supposed to be. I think those unique experiences that we have through our trauma um, allow us to reach people in ways that others can't. You know, because I've lived so many different kinds of things, I've also been jumped by six people. Half my face is titanium. That's a whole nother story um, where I have PTSD now from that. And I've had all these different lived experiences where I can now relate to so many other people 
based on, you know, they may not have the exact same story, but they have similar kinds of ways that their trauma has manifested itself. And so now I can help them from a personal level. But then also because I have this media uh, company, I can now be the one to help present stories that even if I haven't lived them, my hosts have lived them um, or the brands that we're working with are representing those stories. And so now we can use those to reach other kinds of people. So now that's kind of what keeps me alive, essentially, is the fact that I need to help keep others alive. All right. I got to ask this. Going through airport security, is that an issue with the titanium? <laughs> Everybody loves that. Not at all. Titanium does not set off alarms. Though, if you go to a dentist office and they do that little x-ray on your face, your face looks really interesting. Uh, I definitely look like the Terminator. Now, uh, what age did that happen? Uh, that happened at the age of 26. Yeah, I believe 26. Um, I was uh, still working at SiriusXM at the time. I worked there for 11 years um, and was running radio channels. We were just about to launch um, a new George Carlin radio station. And I went out to this party, a friend's party, um, and it was in Hoboken, New Jersey. Anybody who knows the way New Jersey and New York is set up, Hoboken is just right across the water from New York. It's kind of like a, if you're younger, you kind of view it as the mini New York, the cheaper New York. So that's where we would party when we were younger. And I went out there, went to an open bar, got really drunk, um, and walked back to the train to go uh, back. It was probably about one in the morning. And according to eyewitnesses, because my memory is very hazy, partially because of the alcohol, partially because I probably had an undiagnosed concussion, um, and partially because of the trauma. A lot of times you've, your memory spotty within those situations. Um, as I was walking back, according to eyewitnesses, me and somebody started arguing. There were six guys sitting outside of a, a, a store, restaurant area, and they just started arguing with me. Um, they just picked me out of the crowd. And as I'm arguing with one, his six friends surrounded me. And next thing I remember is a punch just hitting me from the right side. I just remember a fist. I got blindsided, knocked me out cold that instant. Again, according to eyewitnesses, they then gang up on me and just beating my face. Only my face, just pounding it in. And they completely fractured my orbital bone on the right side. So when I did eventually um, you know, get surgery a few weeks later... Uh, they had to put three titanium plates on my face, one on the right cheek, just underneath the eye. Um, so going, you know, up and down horizontally, I'm sorry, vertically. And then one, uh, on the side of my face. Um, so just to the right side of my right eye. So on the right side of my face there, and then a titanium plate underneath my eye to help support my eye from falling into itself. Um, because they fractured the orbital bone so bad that the doctors feared that the bone might deteriorate even more and that my eye might fall into my, my own face. Um, they also said I may lose my eyesight in my right eye. It was a, a pretty rough experience, and I had to be out of work for a month while we were you know, launching this new station that I, I w had been creating for the last few months. Um, so, yeah, that's how uh, I became the Terminator. Were you surprised by how your your friends and the people around you, family, how they responded? Uh, you broke up a little bit there. I, I think you had said it, whereas I surprised uh, by how they responded. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I wouldn't say I'd say I was surprised. I was very appreciative of how they all responded. So when I woke up in the hospital, um, I didn't know what had happened. I just remember waking up in the hospital. I couldn't see out of my right eye. It was swollen shut. Um, at first, I'm like, okay. Uh, I kind of knew, all right, I'm, you know, hurt. I'll probably be discharged later. I'm fine. I didn't know the severity yet. Nurse came in, opened my eye, and all I was seeing was yellow out of my right eye. And I told her this. She goes, oh, that makes sense. Your eye's full of blood right now, and it may choke itself out, and you may lose that, the sight in that eye. That's when I finally freaked out and was like, oh, my gosh, let me call my friends that live in this neighborhood, the ones I was just out with the night before. They came immediately. I am so appreciative of my friends, Steve, Emily, Liz, Matt, they, they, all four of them were there basically with, with me the whole day. And they basically saved my, my face. They saved my eyesight because in that hospital, uh, they were looking to do surgery on me that day. And as my friends stayed with me while we're waiting for the surgeon to come, you know, five hours go by, surgeon's still not there. Um, they're getting increasingly worried that this hospital may not know what they're really doing. They eventually were like, Chris, you have to call your mom and, and, you know, let her know what happened. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to tell her, you know, I'm, you know, very much afraid that 
my mom's gonna get upset with me. You know, I, when I was a kid, I, I hurt my leg playing basketball and she got upset with me. So I'm like, and I, I'm gonna be fine. You know, I'll be able to get surgery. She'll never even know this happened. I'll pay for it. I'll be good. They eventually were like, Chris, nah, if you don't call your mother, we're calling your mother. I'm like, all right, fine. I'll call my mom. So I called her. She immediately at the time she was living in, in Georgia. Um, she immediately, she had moved from Maryland since I had, you know, moved up to New Jersey uh, to go to college. And, um, she hops on a plane immediately, comes up to, to, to see me and, and get me. And the reason I said they helped save my face, save my eyesight, when she got there, she's like, no, I'm taking you out of here. We're going to Johns Hopkins. We're going back to Baltimore, the best eye institute in the country, and we're going to get you worked on there. When they saw me down in Maryland, they said, your face is too swollen to operate on for at least another week, possibly two weeks. Any operation now, you may lose your eyesight. Your face may be disfigured. If my friends wouldn't have made me call my mother... I probably would have done that surgery in Hoboken, and my story is probably a lot different than it currently is. So am I surprised? No, because I try to surround myself with great people who are caring. But am I appreciative? Beyond. Beyond appreciative for the kind of friends that I had and the fact that they didn't just listen to what I wanted to do, and they took the initiative to make me take care of myself. Wow, man. What an incredible story. Um it, it it reminds me, I, I had neck surgery and I went to four different doctors before I had the spinal fusion in my neck. And uh, they all said that I'd be laid up for like three months. And then I finally went to a, a doctor at Cedar sinai and he was like, man, we're going to have you walking out of surgery. And <laughs> so it, it, it's... I bring, that, I bring this story up for, for two reasons and I want to highlight your story also in that, you know... It, not just in terms of, uh, you know, getting a facial reconstruction or spinal fusion. Uh, is it about finding the right person? It's also the same thing when we talk about our mental health. Because uh, I know so many people who have uh, been to counseling, uh, went to a therapist, and, and had uh, not the best experience. And I just want to say to the people who are, to those who've had that, if you're listening, uh, know that you have to it takes time. Sometimes the, it's, it's not that therapy it doesn't work. It's just the, your relationship with the therapist is not the best. And you need to continue to work to find someone that can help you get moving in the right direction, uh, even when we're talking about uh, your mental health. So do not give up if you've had uh, a, a negative experience with a doctor, physical, mental, emotional, Absolutely. any type of doctor. Absolutely. I, and just to piggyback off you there, like I, I'm on my fourth therapist now and, and the first two didn't work because honestly, I wasn't in the right place yet. I you know, just wasn't ready to fully bear my soul to you know, this random person. Um, my third one, I was ready and that person just wasn't compatible. They weren't the right person for me. And you know, I kind of threw my hands up again. And then I finally now have found the right person. And actually, this person's in, based in Florida. So I have to do the whole um, you know, uh, virtual therapy. But it's very effective for me, but it took now those four therapists were over the last 15 years. It's taken me 15 years to finally find the right therapist. So to piggyback off what you said, like it, it can sometimes be a journey. But once you find the right person, it, it's definitely worth it. How have you I would imagine at post-surgery there was some pain involved. How did you cope with the, the pain and, and discomfort? Um, there was pain involved, but it was less pain than than having a fractured, uh, you know, fractured bones in your face. Like I could only eat soft things. Um, so I actually have a very high pain tolerance. I once had a broken leg for two weeks and didn't realize it. So the pain wasn't that bad. I've never been one who's had to take pain medication. Um, I think the thing that was the toughest was not having normalcy. So being stuck in my mom's home in Maryland, which was a very nice home. So I said she came from Georgia, but she has a home in Maryland. She had a home in Georgia at the time. So I was staying at her place in Maryland. And that was the toughest thing. The pain wasn't tough. It was the fact that I couldn't play basketball. I couldn't go to work as crazy as that sounds. Like I just wanted anything that made me feel normal. And that was the tough thing. And the way I coped, honestly, is I still worked anyway. <laughs> uh, my boss used to yell at me for getting on. Uh, the VPN and connecting in the work. And he's like, Chris, is that you? Get off work. No, this is the only thing I have left. Um, so yeah, that's how I coped, which honestly isn't necessarily the best coping mechanism. So I say that was how I coped, but it's also how I've coped in a lot of my life, which is 
if something's going bad, then just bury yourself deeper into the work. And that's something I've now realized later in life that I've been doing. And my sister and I were just talking about this a couple months ago. She does it as well. I think somehow we learn that growing up, whether it had been through you know, our family, whether it had been just through society, I don't know yet. Um, but yeah, I say that's how I cope, but I'm not recommending that's how anybody else should cope because you could also then bury a lot of things that you should be dealing with in the here and now and just masking it by saying, well, I'm too busy to, to handle this right now. Uh, being aware that you use work as a coping mechanism, what are, are, are there moments where you're like, you know what, I, I should be coping with it in this way or that way. Have you discovered, are you slowly uh, discovering those ways? Yeah, I am. And now I'm doing a lot of the work of now trying to dig back into my past to try to finally deal with things. And I'm finding it's very difficult um, only because you don't, at least for me, I haven't been able to remember all the details from the, the traumas that I've had because I buried them so deep that now, you know, my body's like, well, no, we're not bringing that back out. So I'm trying to find different practices, whether it be meditation, I'm trying things like Reiki, I'm trying anything to help me try to remember some of these experiences so I can now deal with them and be, and well, I'll say be done with them, but to be able to then, um, be more informed about how that's affected my life and how I can use them in a positive way. Um, now also, yes, I'm trying to deal with the past stuff, but now as things come up, I'm able to deal with them in the here and now, and that's been very beneficial. Um, but I now understand that, oh my gosh, if I just would have been doing this from the very beginning, I could be in a much better place now. Um, if I just dealt with stuff when it happens, as opposed to, all right, I'll deal with this 10 years from now when I have the time or, or whatever. So in trying to impart to, to anybody listening that if they've gone through anything similar, like saving your trauma to deal with later is probably the worst thing that you can do. Uh, when you said that you are uh, finding ways to deal with uh, instances now, what does that look like instead of, of putting things off? What is that? Can you give us an example of you dealing with something right now so it doesn't build up and, and you go to work to cope with it? Sure. Yeah. So part of the work I've been doing on myself lately has been reading um, a lot more spiritual type books. Um, I've heard actually some of them mentioned on your, your program, but um, you know, things like uh, Ways of the Shaman, uh, The Ninth, Ninth Insight, 10th Insight, uh, Al uh, The Alchemist, a lot of those things are just help me to understand who we are as human beings. And one of the things that I've learned in those books, and I can't remember which one it comes from, I think it actually may come from a few different ones, there's practices about forgiveness um, and forgiveness of others, forgiveness of yourself. And so I'm now doing a lot of work on forgiveness. And so recently we had somebody early on in our company, so a year ago now, um, but it's taken me this long to continue to still try to work around this. We had somebody who worked with us, was very close to me as a friend, and the situation just didn't work out business-wise, and it ended pretty bad. And I think he himself handled things very poorly and, and really ended our friendship because of it. And I thought everything was fine, and then months later, it just it was stuck in my mind. It just continued to be stuck in my mind. It would just pop up at random instances of, wow, I can't believe he would do that, or I can't believe this situation happened. And the old me would have just been like, well, whatever, like you'll get over it. And it would just stick with me forever. Now I'm trying to do the practice of, all right, write down everything about that situation. Just keep it as detailed as possible about what that situation was, how it made you feel, why it made you feel that way. Um, and just write it out. And then take that and meditate on it. You know, breathe. Just focus on your breathing. Um, you know, do that. You're going to have to do this multiple times, but eventually over time, you're going to come to acceptance of this is just, Hey, this is something that happened. And I also am forgiving of the fact that this person may not have even been in control of themselves. There's a, one of the books I read, it talks about ego. And a lot of the things that we do are based out of our sense of self. And his sense of self was built in being a victim. And a lot of what he did was through the lens of him feeling like he was a victim. And so now I can look at that and, and feel bad for him as, instead of feeling angry at him. I'm like, oh my gosh, he is stuck in this loop and he doesn't know how to get out. And he sabotaged himself now in this relationship the same way he did in his other relationships. Man, I hope he gets better. And so now you're over time able to make that pivot. So that's one of the more recent ones for me. And I'm hoping to be able to do that more with some of the past things in my life. And even for myself, there's things that I've done that... 
I need to forgive myself for and understand why I may have done certain things. And so, you know, I think that's really important is to, to be as detailed as possible about those incidences so you can really get to the heart of why they happened and, um, you know, how they made you feel. So that way you can move on. Absolutely. Because you start to have compassion for them. Right. You, you, yes. you guys, the, the, the empathy builds up and you, and you start to real you start to see things from from their perspective uh, as you did. You're like, wow, this person really wasn't even in control uh, and they weren't even aware of, of what they were doing. And and you're like, wow, that must suck to to be, uh, you know, going through that, because you realize also that, like you said, it's not personal the way he was treating you because it, it showed up in other areas of his life. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just uh, it was Valentine's Day this past year. I had realized one of the things that I had done bad. I reached out to a girlfriend that I dated back in college. So 15 years earlier than, than when I had texted her to say, I'm sorry. I, I apologize because I realized, you know, she was always really trying to look out for me. And I realized that I at that time didn't realize how messed up emotionally I was mentally, how messed up I was, how angry I was at, at certain things in my life. And yet. I was then I wasn't taking that on her. Nothing, you know, any kind of verbally abusive, nothing physically abusive. But she had to bear bear the weight of my mood. Um, And then the fact that even after we broke up, I'd kind of come back to her and pull her in and then push her away, pull her in and push her away. And so I had to follow up with her apologize and say, I now understand myself better. And I realized that I was in no place to be in a relationship at that point. But I appreciate what you did for me. And I appreciate the, the things that you taught me about how to journal or how to, um, you know, meditate. And I'm now applying those things now. And so it was very therapeutic for me to get out this apology 15 years later. And then her response was, oh, my gosh, I didn't even realize that I'd been holding on to this. Thank you so much for saying this. I didn't realize how much that this was still affecting me. And now this is giving me closure that I didn't even realize I needed. And then that comment itself made me feel even better. And now I don't think about that incident anymore. I used to that used to pop in my head every few months of, man, how'd you do this person so wrong? And now that I've apologized and now that this person said how much it meant that I did so, you know, now I think we're both so much healthier for it. Apologies, appreciation, and acceptance. Those three things are so valuable to all of us, and I think we underestimate it. Mm -hmm. When you you look at the the future stories that you want to tell, you know, of course, we talked about the, uh, the, the, what's the name, Danny Ray Thomas story. Yep, yep. Is there... Is there another story that uh, you you feel like needs to be told that ne- 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 that's not necessarily uh, fact based or, or you know based off a situation, but uh, has a, has a theme or is there a, a theme or uh, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to necessarily be some pull from the news, but you're just like, how's this how's this angle not been covered? How have we not seen this? It's funny. I have a I have a running list on my phone of so many ideas I want to do. Um, I very much love doing documentaries and audio documentaries. So I have like this running list of those kind of things. But the one that I'm most passionate about and the way I actually always thought I would start my company. And unfortunately, we still haven't even done this, but I want to eventually do is a project around homelessness um, and doing it through the lens of the homeless people themselves. So there's lots of projects out there in terms of talking about the homeless problem. But I want to do a project that can really put you a little bit more to a little bit more in the shoes of what it is like to be homeless. And the fact that we ignore these people every single day. And I am speaking completely from my own perspective. I ignore them. And I know that there's a problem in doing that. And yet I still do. Um, So to be able to showcase that these are human beings um, and there's this video that I love to show people when I'm telling them about what I want to do with this idea um, it was based out of Orlando. I think it was shot maybe in like 2007, maybe. It was, it's an older video. But it's just of homeless people holding up signs about what their profession was before or how they became homeless. And you'll see signs like, I'm a former NFL player. I used to be a doctor. Uh, I chose being homeless over my kids having a place to stay. Uh, I'm a victim of domestic uh, abuse. Like, there are so many stories that you don't realize that these people on the side of the street can be easily you or me 
you know, most of us live paycheck to paycheck. One little tragedy, and we're unfortunately now kind of experiencing that now, and I am a little afraid of how the homeless numbers are gonna take up after this, but we're a lot of us are just one paycheck away from being homeless. And so I wanna be able to tell those stories so that we can understand that these these stories are our our potential stories. And I think it's only then that we can start to make changes when we can see ourselves in these people and, and humanize them. And uh, you know, I wanna do that on a national level so that it's not like, oh, these are just homeless people in New York, all oh, these only homeless people in San Francisco. I wanna tell these stories across the country some, somehow. Man, I love that. There's this woman named Sarah that I see every day uh, on my walk. Uh, I'm in San Diego right now, but up in LA. And she's always sleeping on a bench. And one day I walked past her and I noticed that her teeth were perfect and, and beautifully and just like gleamingly white. And hmm. but but, you know, the rest of her was, you know, she she's at least 100 pounds overweight. And she's, she has like 12 layers of clothes. And and I was like, OK, this this woman has a story. She clearly didn't start here because her, her teeth look way better than mine. And one day I sat down next to her and I asked her, I was like, you know, how, how did you get here? And she said that she used to own a business. It was a small business. I forget what the business is. And, uh, and they were just starting up. And she was like, you know, in the first two years, you're not really making a, a, a profit. And, uh, and then she had an injury. And it, it was the injury put her out of, of work. And then she couldn't run the business. And it just became a, a domino effect of trying to pay for the medical bills, trying to keep the business afloat, and it, it wiped her out. And, um, and she said a lot of people who live on the streets uh, are former entrepreneurs, people who hmm. were, they started a business and, you know, right before they could, you know, when I, I read, I listen to uh, How I Built This, it's a, it's a podcast yep. put on by NPR. And every successful business that they featured talk about how they ran out of money and was able at some point to get more money. That's the story of every single entrepreneur <laughs> yep. that has made it. Whether you're talking about Lululemon, you're talking about uh, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, all of these guys, they were just able to keep making money when they were losing money. And so these companies, these small companies, these, these mom and pops, if, if, when, as soon as they run into a hiccup, if they're unable to procure uh, more funding, uh, it's hard to raise capital for a small business. Like nobody, there's not much a return on something small. And, mm -hmm. and so they, they end up uh, either losing the business or, you know, completely losing, losing their, their lifestyle. And uh, it's just, so it's just a fascinating tale of it's like, how can you can you keep bringing in enough money from outside sources long enough until your business can get up and running? Yep. Yeah. You're asked, it's, it's funny you brought up that that kind of perception there of, of every business basically that, you know, that is successful has basically run out of money. They're, they're either going to go under or hit get make it to the top. And I was just having the same uh, conversation with somebody of, all right, you know, as a company, we're, we're probably right around the corner from that. Either we, you know, go under in the next couple of years or we're going to be the next huge thing. And uh, unfortunately, that can sometimes then, you know, make you homeless. You know, you take this chance. And I think, you know, that's a story that probably hasn't been told. And I think the fact that you have taken the time out to have a conversation with that person, that's what we want to try to influence. You know, yes, you might not be able to give money to these people. You may not be able to necessarily put them, you know, back into a living situation. But at least you can treat them as human beings and sit down and have a conversation with them and make them feel seen. Um, and then hopefully, you know, more comes of that. But at the very least, that's what we can do as human beings. You know, what was fascinating about her is uh, she was reading a book. And I was like, what are you reading? And it was some type of self-help book. And... I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to keep reading, though. She's like, no, you have to continue reading. You have to continue feeding your mind. She goes, that's the most important thing. And, you know, she gave me this stern look like, like she was my mama, you know. And, <laughs> and, I, and I'll never forget that, you know. I mean, that's one of those moments that really uh, stuck with me and resonated with me. This woman who's on a park bench is like, you know, I'm, I'm here, but 
Uh, like I'm not like this isn't this is the end of my story, you know. And uh, it, it's just it, it's just it is a reminder that we we all are human beings and uh, how how close we could all be to you know being on a park bench. Yeah. But uh, but I, I bring all that up to 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 wrap it up is to say that. Um, you know, tying into these companies, getting money to stay afloat, uh, in order to do that, they have to, they have to ask for help. Uh, these co- Facebook, Jeff Bezos, all these companies, even today, even with the billions and millions of dollars that they're making, they still are, they're sending in lobbyists to the government. They're, they're sending, uh, they have marketing, like they're still asking for more money. They're still asking for more funding. Elon Musk is constantly trying to raise more money to fund his ideas and get things out there. And I bring that up to say that uh, I know that there are people who are listening in right now who are going through something and they're afraid to ask for help. They're afraid to make a phone call. They're afraid to reach out. They're afraid to call their friends. They're afraid to call their mama. Pick up the phone call. Ask for help. If Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, if these billionaires (laughs) are still asking for help, if they're still looking for, I mean, listen, they could call it what they want. They could call it, uh, I'm just trying to raise some capital. No, you're, you're begging. You're asking for help. But, you know, they, they got to, they gotta, like, you know, brush it up and, and, and clean it up and make it sound cool. Listen, ask for help. Never be, your story needs to be told no matter how small, no matter how big. It, it's, it's, there's somebody out there that can relate, and there's somebody out there who can help and will help you. And, and and it could be like the difference between you getting surgery in in uh you know Hoboken or where, wherever that happened or at uh John Hopkins. You know, like it it makes a difference. So reach out, call the one eight hundred suicide number. Don't be ashamed. Call for somebody else if they have to. Um is there is there anything that we haven't talked about, Christopher, that you feel like uh people who are struggling to, to tell you know, actually can you tell us what makes a story? Like, what are, what are the parts of a story? There's some crappy storytellers out there. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, like, what, what's the, what are, the, what are the, the ingredients of a great story? Ingredients of a great story or a great storyteller, um, I think, are that you're able to ride a wave. Um, you know, I used to work with Jamie Foxx for a lot of years, and he's one of the best storytellers. He knows how to make you laugh, but then... He's going to pull it back and it's going to be serious for a little bit. And then he's going to make you laugh a little bit and then he's going to get serious again because you can't be at the top serious the entire time. You can't be laughing the entire time. It has to be a balance. And I think that's a great story. A story has a lot of balance to it. Um, I think also it's something that, that you know, captivates you emotionally. It has to have an emotional connection. Um, otherwise, you feel like you're you know, just reading a, a report. You know, that that's not a story. A story is something that you can connect to and feel connected to um, in an emotional kind of fashion. So, yeah, I think something that has these waves um, of, of emotion that you're able to go on um, as the story goes along, whether it be something that's short or, you know, something that's more of like a movie type of story. So this is the part of the episode where I ask Chris. The before you kill yourself question. And he gave us a response. However, he didn't like his response, and he emailed me after we recorded and said, man, I gave you such a horrible response. I, I, that's not what I would, <clears throat> what I said wasn't helpful. And so he emailed me what he wanted to say. And here's what Chris had to say to anyone out there who was on a precipice of ending their life. It's complicated as every situation is different. But if I had to give an overarching piece of advice, it would be to reach out to a professional or someone you trust to let them know what you are struggling with so they can help give you perspective on what you're dealing with and how you can have a positive impact on others given what you're experiencing, end quote. So, for the listeners out there, for you guys, I want to share that because it's so. It just shows how much people care about you as an individual, as a listener. That you know, he would email me after and be like, "Man, could you please delete what I said? That that wasn't helpful." 
and here's uh, what you could I, I would prefer for you to put in there somehow. And so uh, just know that strangers who don't even know you, don't even know what situation you're in, your background, the things you've done, the things you want to do, care enough about you. You know, and I know it's it's just the email, but it, it just it says a lot. It's a small thing that, that says a lot of things. And um, I'm thankful that you have decided to tune in again and rate it five stars and uh, go on to thrivewithleo.com. I appreciate all of that. And I appreciate Chris Colbert for sending in that email and really putting thought into that question and really putting thought into how you as the listener would feel. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you. And just a quick reminder, BetterHelp is not a crisis line and wants you to start living a happier life today. So go to BetterHelp, H-E-L-P forward slash Leo and enjoy your 10% off today. Today you can start your journey to being happy to achieving your goals, to feeling heard and connected. You can start communicating now. It's worldwide, and you can join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional now. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo to start your journey today.